This Short Code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler, and with me today, as always, is a group of medical students come together to show you something of the ins and outs of medical school. Say hello to M4 Joe Nellis. Is this where I'm supposed to like say yeah. hello to everybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there he is. I'm sorry, we, we, I neglected that portion of the orientation. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, welcome to the show. Amanda Manorot is over there as well. She's an M2. Hello. Uh, Phil Huang, M2, is here. Hello. Also. Hi, yes. Phil. Hi. How are you? Good. So I asked you guys to join me uh, because we had a topic request from a listener. Uh, way back in September, uh, med student Ryan from Penn called to ask us to do a show on the opportunities in business and management for physicians. Let's play his call so you know exactly what he's interested in. My name is Ryan O'Keefe. I'm a second year med student at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm part of a group at Penn called HealthX, which focuses on showing students the opportunities in medical management, entrepreneurship, technology, among a few other things. Um, but I'm, I'm really passionate about this stuff. and. I saw that the Carver College has a similar group called uh, Tech Biz Paul, and it also offers opportunities to do dual degrees like MD, MBH, MD, MBA. And I'd really like to hear in the future you guys talk a little bit about more about those opportunities because um, there's so much you can do kind of outside of just strictly clinical practice, um, both in, as a student and in your future career. And I'm wondering, do you guys feel that students at Carver are kind of interested in those things? If so, I really appreciate you guys' help. You can share it on the pod or talk about it with your fellow students. Thanks so much. Can't wait to hear more episodes. Peace. Once again, Ryan, thanks for your call. Um, appreciate you calling 347-SHORT-CT to, uh, to suggest a topic. So I thought you guys would be great to talk to about these opportunities uh, because you're taking part in our Healthcare Science and Delivery Management Distinction Track. Uh, Joe, this is... Something that you uh, helped found uh, a few years ago, right? Yeah, it was, um, I think it was after our f- first year of medical school. So, man, this is going to be dating me now. It's, yeah, uh, it was like three years ago, two, two four years, years ago, because I took a year off. Oh, right. Yeah. So, yeah, back a couple of years ago, um, a handful of us medical students were really kind of, you know, getting getting our feet wet in medical school, getting orientated, getting classes done. At the same time, too, though, we were realizing friends and family were talking about, you know, what is this healthcare insurance or healthcare reform stuff we're hearing about in the news? And we had no idea, you know, we're like, uh, we're supposed to be the experts on this because we're in medical school now. Um, but we had no idea what was going on. Uh, we were just focused on taking tests every Friday and <laughs> largely what's happening in the news was foreign to us. Um, and kind of when we were like looking around, we were, you know, our mentors, they had no idea really what was going on or how to, how to really make sense of it all. And so we were left wondering, like, well, who is making sense of this? Um, we're going into this career, but we have no idea what these policies that are affecting our career are all about. And so after talking to a few people around the college, um, we got set up or introduced to Dr. Alan Reed, 
who also kind of shared these same beliefs and these same um, concerns. And the rest is history. We, you know, we piloted a, a program and that program turned into a distinction track. And uh, we found out that we weren't the only ones that had these concerns. There was an overwhelming response from the student body um, that also felt these were valuable um, issues to be discussed and uh, looked at. And here we are today, a couple of years later, have a distinction track that's um, teaching these as a minor, if you will, on the curriculum here at Carver and uh, good responses. Yeah. The track is um, helping you to be educated on policy, on, it, it, and, and as I understand it, also innovation, um, probably both in policy and in things like business and technology. Technology, not you're, so you're, much. You're giving me this weird look, like you're kind of confused on it. And I'm kind of, I mean, it's, it is what you want to make of it. Largely, okay. it's is there to. I give a lot of confused looks. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> Uh, is it, when we set out to do this, we knew that we weren't going to provide a, an MBA for any of these students. We were going to provide the full story uh, for any students who were going to be participating in this track. Right. Our goal is just to kind of get their feet wet, you know, kind right. of whet their appetite and really say, show them what's out there and kind of what they should be aware of moving forward. Um, a first introduction, if you will. Right. Um, and these topics range from negotiations, uh, financial accounting, um, marketing, um, health, uh, health data, um, big data, um, telehealth, um, things that, you know, physicians encounter during their career that they never encountered during medical school. Yeah. My, you guys can sort of confirm whether this is true or not, but my perception is that, uh, medical school wasn't so much about, was, was never so much about, um, teaching these things or even a small portion of these things. I mean, it's very focused on science. It's very focused on um, the practice of clinical medicine. When it came to the business side of medicine and the leadership side of medicine, those were kind of things that you traditionally learned on the job once you left medical school. Do you do you guys uh, do you guys agree with that? Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot of pieces of the puzzle that are taken for granted. For example, we I think we still hold the past uh, perception of how physicians are just supposed to take care of their patient as like the sole priority or the top priority for what we're trying to learn here. And we don't understand that has become a lot more complex. And they are trying to make changes, especially here with the two other strands of our like triple stranded curriculum, uh, trying to teach us the wider picture mm -hmm. uh, now. But I think that's still a very pervasive attitude where as physicians, we're just supposed to take care of our patient and everything else will take care of itself. Just leave the rest of it to the administrators. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I would agree with you, Dave. Um, I remember when I applied to medical school, you know, a couple years ago, I was looking at, you know, what schools provided opportunities to learn about, you know, healthcare delivery, business management. And I think, you know, when I was doing my research, um, applying to medical schools, I saw that many schools are now incorporating business and policy and you know trying to educate their students on how to be competent physicians in a world where there's so much going on in the political landscape and you know they want physicians to be able to advocate for policy change and yeah. what our careers look like in the future yeah yeah and I don't think at the end of the day though I don't think it becomes an overwhelming priority but it's something to be considered moving forward for a successful career I think you know the purpose of medical school should still be producing sound physicians that are going to be able to perform at a high level and take care of patients. 
Um, but to kind of take it a step further and say, truly make an impact in your career, I think some of these things are critical to understand or actually be familiar with. Physicians, I think, traditionally haven't really taken or been given necessarily an invitation to sit at the table while these decisions are being made. Things like, you know, uh, electronic health records and policy insurance decisions, um, things of that nature. It's sort of like, okay, well, we'll decide that you, you know, you take care of your patients and and we'll, maybe it's in response to uh, that sort of lack of agency. Yeah, I think there's just one big trend, too, is the trend towards having more of your care provided in hospitals. And when you start having care provided in hospitals, that's when a lot of the administrators get involved. Whereas in the past, physicians would have their own clinics and you'd run your own clinic. The way you wanted to. The way you wanted to, yeah. And now that physicians are all working in hospitals, when you're in a hospital with that big of a group, that's when you start having more administration. Yeah. And the big growth in hospital care has been a part of that. I had one. We I know of at least one of our alumni who um, sort of felt it was taboo to think about a career in business or in the business side of medicine. Sort of come to medical school and get also get an MBA and maybe not practice medicine, but maybe use that knowledge um, on the business side of medicine, you know, maybe after residency or whatever. What's your, any thoughts about that as a valid thing to do? Well, I think there is still the stigma out there that if you are, you know, in medical school or you have an MD and then you pursue your MBA or are interested in business that you're kind of selling out and your primary goal isn't taking care of patients. And, you know, I don't truly believe that you can, I don't think that's mutually exclusive. I think you can also, you know, be focused on doing what's right by your patients and trying to improve the healthcare system and still, you know, be interested in business and find ways to integrate those two interests together. Yeah, I think going out there, as long as your motivations are still true to the, the goals of medical school, and that is teaching students to become successful physicians and impact uh, patients' lives in the future, um, I think you can still make those cases in the setting of, uh, say, industry relations or working in that uh, business setting. Um, Although I think the direct connection is easier to make when it's a physician or a surgeon treating patients directly one-on-one. That's a very easy connection to see and to make. It becomes a little bit more difficult when you have an indirect connection, uh, say a chief medical officer providing oversight over a million and a half, two million covered lives on an insurance plan and trying to drive quality health care that way. Um, it's still, it, you can still connect the dots, but it's not an A to B connection. Mm-hmm. How do you experience the relationship between the business school faculty, you know, who um, deliver some of these lectures to you on these topics? We're coming from different perspectives. Um, And that was one of the goals of the Distinction Track originally was to bring in these uh, content experts is what we kind of want to call them. Because, A, it provides you the best education you can in that short period that we're meeting. But then also it kind of opens up your mind to like say consider these different perspectives you know we're bringing in topics that are purely business um, they've never stepped foot in the healthcare space and they can say you know these are the best practices that work for these corporations and granted making cars like at toyota is not the same as taking care of patients in the or but maybe you know it can spark uh, some students to say you know think of it differently and really make these connections that aren't traditionally in the healthcare space and start changing things. 
Um, so I think, you know, having peer business uh, professors coming in and teaching these healthcare related topics is a good thing um, to really drive change and kind of spark new ideas. And I feel like, um, you know, in some of these seminars that we have, um, like Joe mentioned, some of them have never stepped into a healthcare space. And so a lot of them are unfamiliar with um, kind of the systems that we use. And it really is a two-way conversation, even though they're up there giving us a lecture um, or working through a case with us. It really is a conversation because they're trying to understand our perspective at the same time mm-hmm. while we're trying to you know, learn the tools that they use and trying to incorporate that into you know, our future careers and our practice. I was just thinking of the effort that some hospitals are making now to, and I think our hospital too, making now to um, streamline how patients proceed from from one place in the hospital to another so that the experience that they have is a better one. And this strikes me as a sort of a business-oriented idea. I mean, you want people to have a as good a time experiencing your system as they can. And so making people walk from one end of the hospital, for instance, to the other end of the hospital and then back on the same day that they're visiting the hospital is not necessarily a good way to run a business. You would never like, you know, run a business that way, but you might run a hospital that way. And you probably did in the past run hospitals that way. Well, yeah, I mean, it seems like a no-brainer, right? I mean, it, it you, does, you, but... You look at it from the outside, and you're like, well, this is common yeah. sense. And then you wonder, well, why hasn't it been like that historically? Right. And I think if you look at it, too, you'll probably see that recently there's been a lot of constraints down on costs, and there's been a focus on kind of slowing the, the rapid inflation we're seeing with healthcare costs, and that's the pressure is being put back on the hospitals to control that. Mm-hmm. And payers are saying, you know, we're not paying anymore, we're not reimbursing how we used to. Like, this is your problem, kind of pushing the buck onto the hospitals or the physicians. And now you're starting to finally see some of these changes that are like, oh, maybe we should uh, improve the operations of our hospital to maximize, uh, say, revenues, or we don't have the comforts we used to um, back in the heyday. Yeah. Fee for service, not into a value based care system. Yeah. And I think um, now, you know, more so there's a shift towards thinking of healthcare as a business, you know, from a hospital perspective, you know, they're really thinking about who is their consumer and that's the patient. And, you know, what is the patient experience like? And, you know, if I'm going to the grocery store, obviously you want to have a good experience. Or if I'm going to a shopping mall, you want to have a good experience or an amusement park. There's actually a book called, you know, what if your um, what if Disneyland ran your hospital? You know, what would that look like? And so I think there is a they shift. have a hospital. <laughs> yeah. So what, you know, there's a shift towards what you know. What is the patient experience? What are they experiencing? And especially now when patient satisfaction is you know one of the metrics that um, hospitals are evaluated by and physicians are evaluated by. Like, sure. That that has definitely become more of a focus. That particular example brings up a point, which is at least for me, part, part of the, you know, that, that's a problematic measure, but it, my guess is that came out of some effort to, to businessify the practice of medicine, um, you know, starting to measure patient satisfaction. Um, and some, a lot of doctors push back against that, like as a, as a, it's a, it's a problematic measure because, you know, somebody who is very sick, may not have had a really great time 
at the hospital or somebody who's told you need to fix this part of your health in order to become a healthy person and they don't want to fix that thing. As long as, I mean, the trend right now is patient care is getting more and more complex, lasting longer and longer, so more and more chronic care. And so as long as that keeps on going and care keeps on getting more and more complex to deliver, then we'll have more and more of that push towards these business principles that then will make our delivery much more efficient. But can you can you go too far with that? And, and you're yeah. asking, are there like marginal returns on being too nice to patients? That's probably uh, a terrible way to say. No, it. I don't. I, I'm asking if accommodating, if accommodating patients to the point where the doctor, the doctor's medical opinion is subservient to the the happiness of the patient. In this, in that situation, there's kind of a problem there because. Sometimes, if you're doing your job right, the patient is not going to end up happy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think there goes back to like having a balanced scorecard or just a scorecard or just a way to, you know, assess performance within the hospital. You know, I think recently with uh, the Affordable Care Act and these uh, kind of withholdings from reimbursement base, mm-hmm. and then kind of kind of giving back out rewards based off patient satisfaction scores, um, that was at the forefront because it was a new thing that was mm-hmm. happening. Um, although it only represented a small portion of total reimbursement. Yeah. So I think it was like 1% or 2% yeah. that was actually based upon patient satisfaction. Yeah. Um, so I'd still say the majority of a physician's performance, how it's measured, is still based off of outcomes. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, although it's what's the easiest thing for people to get behind and really understand, it's patient satisfaction. Right, right. No one's going to understand the intricacies of cancer care mm-hmm. chemotherapies or stratifying risk before a surgery. Right. Um, but what everyone does understand is how they felt when they left the hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a matter of what can I understand and what can I as a patient actually have an impact or a say in. Right. And I think that's the easiest thing but, for them. But then for doctors, maybe having a say in having more of an active role in determining like, okay, well, what does this mean? Um, and yeah, how should this information be used yeah. and things like that? Yeah, if you're going to hold me accountable to this, then how can I change or how can I influence yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. So I, was, I read an article recently. It was basically like, you know, why is healthcare so much more expensive in the U.S. than it is in Europe? And the person who wrote this article was an economist, and he said that it was because doctors get paid too much. And... Even the facts that he cited in the article were kind of bullshit because it turns out that, you know, the the amount his own figures show that the amount that doctors get paid in the U.S. were like a 32nd of the total amount that gets spent by, you know, per household on health care every year, as opposed to, you know, in Europe where it's like. Yeah, it's it's a little less, but it's not that much less. You know what I'm saying? Like, so the argument that doctor pay is a huge driver of healthcare costs is it's easy to go. It's it's easy to draw that connection, but you don't have to look very far to go. Well, there's some. There's more to that. There's a lot more to that story. Mm-hmm. It's definitely know. a piece to it, but there's yeah, there's a lot more. There's to that a story. lot more. I would say if you look at Europe, I mean, you know what what do people pay for healthcare in Europe? You know. And also, what do people pay to go to medical school mm-hmm. in those countries in Europe? And you know, what does the malpractice look like? You know, I think there's a lot of hidden fees that 
are in doctor salaries, you know, whether it's paying back your paying back your debt or, you know, the malpractice um, insurance that you have to purchase or comes you know, out of your salary or um, a number of factors, you know, and they have different healthcare systems than we have here. And I think, I mean, one other thing to think about it too is like tax rates. But I think at the end of the day, the the biggest difference would be the ratio of specialist to primary care. And I think with specialists getting paid a lot more than primary care, and given that the U.S. has so many more specialists, that's more close. That's closer to the root of the problem, hmm. I think, mm-hmm. than the whole just saying doctors get paid more. Right. Yeah. So what makes what do you guys what do you guys think? is the reason we have such high healthcare costs in the U.S.? What's your understanding? Like, I don't know. I I mean, as students, I feel like we're looking from the outside in on this problem. And, of course, we can, like, go read up and become educated on this. But still, until we're there providing care, it's going to be really hard to say these are the true drivers of healthcare costs. Um, One thing I, I know we've tossed around before in the past is, I mean, choice. So, like, patient autonomy or uh, the ability to choose what how you want to go about treating your your conditions um if you look at some of these other like say england or say universal coverage areas canada they provide one option or two options it's not whatever you saw on the tv is what you have the choice of then choosing for your treatment plan um so i think with with universal coverage or with some of these places that provide uh say care to everybody it has to come with a, a kind of a decreasing patient autonomy as far as decision making and choices moving forward um, if a government is going to be paying 100% of the bill mm-hmm. for that care. So Yeah, and I think looking at the payment structure in our system, you know, um, in countries in Europe, they most of them have a socialized healthcare system where the government, like physicians are government employees and the government reimburses all healthcare costs. But when you know we have players like the insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies, um, you know, part of how money is flowed through our system, you know, I think that's that could be a big factor in why our costs are much higher. Yeah, and let's face it, uh, those national health systems have sometimes had problems of their own. So it's you know certainly not a panacea to the healthcare puzzle. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and I think just at the end of the day, it's like it's a complex issue, and you can't really distill it down to one factor. Yeah, I will note that though uh, Atul Gawande wrote a great article the other day, uh, probably a few a few years ago now, but that I read the other day, yes. uh, comparing how Medicare beneficiaries uh, in somewhere somewhere else in the country, and then compared to this one town in Texas, had vastly different expenditures, and I think the way he wrote about it. The biggest difference wasn't insurance or any of those admin costs with insurance involved, but rather that depending on where you are, uh, like that when that one town in, in Texas, they were just doing way more diagnostic exams and way more surgeries uh, given the same diagnosis. And so I think that that was kind of his argument there. And then it kind of ties into all like the legal environment as well, being defensive about making sure that sure. you catch everything. And then also the like kind of ties us with patient autonomy too where you present a patient with two options like you can get surgery or you can have this other regimen that will take more of your time uh, and both will cost the same to the patient because they're both covered by Medicare and so the patient maybe it's because of the culture they choose to go with surgery for example instead of trying to do some lifestyle change yeah uh, surgery seems like a, that raises the cost yeah. as well yeah. surgery seems like a quick fix so you're going to go to that yeah yeah I think this just brings up the 
underlying fact that although we talk a lot about evidence-based medicine, a lot of things we do in medicine isn't necessarily evidence-based. Um, it's still a very early field of evidence-based medicine. And so when it comes to these gray areas where as a physician, you might not have the evidence to say surgery is a better option in the setting than watch and wait. And it's really, you know, it's gray area. And the, phys- and the patient then has the role to drive the conversation and say, you know what, let's go with surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, there's really not much you can say because you don't have the evidence to kind of mm-hmm. sway them in one way or direction or really kind of provide a solid stance. And so until more evidence becomes available and we know how to use that evidence to help guide decisions, I think we're going to still have the same problem. So you mentioned some of the things that you learn in the distinction track. Um, you mentioned things like negotiation, uh, negotiations, financial accounting, um, data, e-health. There's two things that really interest me on this list, which is there's more. But there's two things that really interest me on this list, and that's e-health, which I take to mean things like telemedicine and data and decisions. Have you? I'm assuming that you guys may not have reached that point yet. I'm not really sure when in the... I think we covered both those topics as M2s, yeah. Mm-hmm. I just find these areas really fascinating, mm-hmm. both as a way to make decisions for you know with data and um, and also the, the reducing costs. I mean, I think telemedicine is seen as a way to reduce costs right now, especially for rural states like like Iowa, where you know people might have to travel long distances to come to the university hospital as opposed to you know booting up their computer and. Mm-hmm. And um, and visiting a doctor that way. Yeah, what did you? What, what what have you guys learned about? Um, we'll start with telemedicine. What have you guys learned about telemedicine? Well, I think this is all driven by the pretty foundational increase in terms of our technology capacity, our, our ability to have these cell phones and these networks that work really well and can transmit this information and store this information the way they do now. Um, and I just feel like there's definitely a place for it. Uh, uh, telemedicine visits not going to be the same as an in-person visit, but there's definitely ways to get information across that would save a lot of time for both the provider and the patient. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so actually um, this past summer I did uh, teledermatology research. Mm-hmm. And so um, one of the main findings is that you know, getting a consult from a dermatologist over the e-consult platform that we have here at the university, um, the return time on that information is you know 12.6 hours uh, versus you know waiting for an in-person visit here at the university is you know 46 days, mm-hmm. and so there definitely is a large amount of time that a patient can save, um, and you know getting a specialist input on their case. Hmm. Um, and then obviously there are benefits, um, you know, for a state like Iowa where people do have to travel, you know, maybe a couple hours um, to come here to the university. Did you learn anything in the course of your research about how how uh, the difficulties that telemedicine presents uh, as to a physician in trying to, say, visit with a patient and look at, you know, and, and arrive at a conclusion or a diagnosis? Or things like that? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think there are some limitations. Um, I think dermatology is a specific field where a lot of, you know, visual cues can, yeah. um, can really help. Um, but there are limitations. And I think the platform I studied was a primary care to specialists platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so not consumer. 
to physician okay. platform, but mm. it was prim- primary care doctor to dermatologist. So I'm a family medicine physician who has a question about a patient's uh, dermatological well, yeah. finding, mm. and mm-hmm. so you would then contact using this platform mm-hmm. a dermatologist yes. who then I, I see mm-hmm. so um so they could work together i mean conceivably to exactly to um uh, more easily than say a patient and a dermatologist could yeah. in a telemedicine but i would say you know when thinking about using any type of telehealth or telemedicine platform knowing when to say the patient needs to come in in person is a, you know a boundary and kind of something you like a physician needs to be aware of yeah a lot of times, you know, you don't need to go to the emergency room. You don't need to go to the physician, but you might need somebody to say that, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like a nurse triage. Yeah, uh, something like that. And oftentimes you can get that over the phone, but um, sometimes it's more it's more difficult and you end up going to the emergency room anyway, even though in the end it turned out, well, you probably didn't yeah. need to go there. So I wonder if that's the sort of thing that could be affected by Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I also looked at some data that was, um, you know, patient to primary care. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a different platform called UIE Care, mm-hmm. and there were a lot of cases. Um, that project didn't turn out to be as fruitful, but there was a lot of cases where, you know, the, the mom was calling for their child and just needed someone to say, "Yes, you, know, you should go to the emergency room." Right. Right. And the data and decisions aspect, as I said, is another area that fascinates me. What do you guys learn about uh, about data? So I guess the big takeaway was, you know, if, if you're going to live by data, you have to die by data. Okay. And so knowing how to, like, trust it. You know, like, if, if you're going to cite some evidence, then you have to be willing to appreciate all the evidence. Um, it doesn't mean that you should just be cherry-picking certain things, but when you look at what all the data says... You have to be willing to say, you know what, if that's what it says, then I'm willing to change based off what that says. Which is difficult. A difficult thing to do. I mean, a lot of, as you said, a lot of decisions in medicine aren't necessarily evidence-based. Even Maybe even when you have the evidence, it's 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 hard to change. It might be offsetting. Like, it might be right. like, oh, wow. I'm, like, this I'm, is not what I expected at all. Yeah. Oh, my... my my resource out my resource management's terrible like i'm spending way more to diagnose these conditions than all my peers yeah like maybe i should go back and reconsider how i do this you know i mean you can pick you can kind of cherry pick the evidence or you can kind of you know oh we're going to measure this as a metric to as a kind of a a secondary measure of this Mm -hmm. um so i guess you know if you're measuring something people are going to perform to that measure and so how do you collect the data in a way that's independent of people knowing you're collecting it as say accurate um and that truly represents what's going on i think is always going to be that question mark so i guess this is the difference between teaching to the test or learning to the test versus learning to learn just to learn you know Mm -hmm. it's sort of similar to that idea yeah um and it also comes out of transparency too you know i think if you're going to say you know your costs are too high, you need to improve, then if you're going to make that statement, you need to be able to show where the evidence is coming from mm-hmm. and then allow that in a timely manner so that way it, it makes an impact and really resonates with the person you're talking to. Because if you come to them a year later and say, you know, last year your costs were too high, well, I don't even know what I did last year, <laughs> you know? And so it needs to be in a timely manner where you can say, hey, last week yeah, you saw this person or that and it's kind of a little high on how your work up. 
and doing it in a way that's that's appropriate enough where they're not taking offense to it, but still timely enough where they can make those changes and know what happened and why things went the way they did. Um, so it's kind of a balancing act of, you know, you can have a very granular, granular approach to it, but that very granular approach may be offsetting and cause a lot of frustrations because everything is then tied to finances or to that metric. Um, but if you're so far removed from it, I don't think it becomes actionable either. Um, so somewhere in between and being willing to being able to work with physicians to say, you know, it's it's not an exact number. It's a range that we're kind of going to be trying to keep you in inside. Um, you can fluctuate within that range. Uh, but when you're really far outside that range, we're going to have to talk about it. Teamwork is something else that's a focus of the healthcare science and delivery management distinction track. What do you guys learn about teamwork that you didn't that you wouldn't learn otherwise? We didn't have a session on it yet, right? Yeah, I don't think, I think we've we've haven't had the closest teamwork, thing we've yeah. had was when we worked on a case together in class mm-hmm. with uh, our neighbors, and that was that was interesting. I hadn't had experience before that working with members, uh, medical students from other classes before, mm-hmm. so that was good to kind of elicit their opinions and see how they were different from mine. Yeah, I, I think the big thing, even the last session on data, I was there for the first half of it, and one thing that came up was operations management aspect where you kind of look at you know quality of an idea times the acceptance or the adoption willingness of people to adopt that idea uh, ultimately leads to equals effectiveness and I think in healthcare that's important because you have a bunch of type A personalities as much as we don't want to admit it thinking that we have the best idea out there like our idea is the best everyone should get on board with it or or else Um, and you know in certain situations uh, maybe the majority of situations that might not be the best idea because essentially if your idea isn't picked up and people don't get on board with it it's effectiveness is zero yeah um so it might kind of behoove us to you know step back and take consensus of the crowd you know incorporate an idea that might be 85 percent accurate versus our perceived 95 percent accurate idea and move forward with 85 percent idea because there's larger buy-in and people can really get behind it well, that's and then, interesting. And yeah. then look over time to maybe gradually, incrementally work back up to a 95 or possibly 100% idea um, rather than trying to just drive our idea through without ever making any compromises. Hmm. It seems like such common, like you say this and it's like, oh, it's common sense. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I, yeah, I don't know that it's not so common. I don't know that it is because, yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. You know, you, you think, I, you know, I have had many ideas. And uh, I, at the time, I always think they're awesome ideas. <laughs> but you know, if they're truly original, they've never been tested, so you don't you don't know what the idea is. You don't know how well the idea is going to work. Yeah. But then also, you have people who are like, "That's a terrible idea." Mm-hmm. And so, if they're, I think it's it makes total sense. Uh, if they're not going to buy into your idea, then your idea is not worth much. Yeah, and going back. And to, so, yeah. and so, I think what you're saying is that it's, you know, part of teamwork is presenting ideas in a way that people can understand and think about and talk about and buy into ultimately hopefully um, so that they can be implemented rather than just be like oh this is another thing that we're gonna do and yeah and I guess another thing too like you think about leadership like what is leadership and it's communication yeah Mm -hmm. everything goes back to communicating and when it comes to an idea or a new idea that you want to implement the first step in all that is going to be like customer discovery, going out and talking with the people who are ultimately going to be the end users of that service or idea and 
talk about the problem with them candidly. Mm-hmm. Um, don't talk about your solution. Just talk about the problem and explore that problem by asking why. You know, like kind of take it down three or four levels. You know, what's is this a current problem you have? Like say yes, and they explain it. Like, well, why is that the case? And really understanding where they're coming from and being willing to change your solution to better fit their needs. Yeah. Um, Not being too wedded to what your ideas of mm-hmm. the problem are in the yeah. first place because yeah. they could yeah. be. They could be wrong. They could be biased towards you that, know, the yeah, things that only you see. And that's difficult to do because, I mean, that's at every level of leadership. There's always going to be people below you, people above you that you're reporting to, and you're going to be required to come up with solutions. And to be able to accommodate everyone's opinions and feel like they have buy-in then in your solutions, it's it's never going to be easy. I don't think it gets easier moving forward. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, and I'll add that. When I think of teamwork and I think of the HDSM track, you know, I'm envisioning like how can I learn from these other perspectives coming in? So whether it's a business perspective, um, a legal perspective, we had a lawyer um, that works for the hospital come talk to us as well, and or a technology perspective, you know, how can I see where they're coming from? And then when I am working with them on a team, you know, how can we communicate effectively and achieve our goals together? Yeah, and definitely one of the key pieces we're learning too through the track is a lot of humility, given that we have these experts coming in and telling us how much we don't know. And I think that definitely helps when we finally do. Isn't that like all of med school though? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I think I think a lot of times too, like as we're learning more and more about medicine, we just assume that we're getting smarter about everything else too. (laughs) So it's good. It's good to like tell us that. Yeah, we're really we're gonna we're getting better and better at medicine and healthcare, like and and just delivering patient care, maybe. Uh, but our other, that doesn't mean that we're just superstars and everything I'm else so too. glad you yeah. said that because one of my own personal bugaboos is that, uh, is that, you know, as you guys proceed in your careers, it might be tempting to think that, you know, I'm the shit, <laughs> you know, like I got everything. You got that big one. You got that long coat on. That's right. I know exactly what I'm doing and y'all don't. And I mean, you know. It's something that I think about sometimes, and and uh, one of the things I like about med students is that they're not there yet, <laughs> and uh, my hope is that they never get there because that's kind of yeah. I think I think in the future too, to be truly like say a successful physician is going to have to have more of that humility to say you know working across professions to say you know what although I'm a, a, a MD, I need to actually listen to and talk with our administrative people. You know, work and talk with payers and insurers to really drive high value healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, because right now, I think it's a setting where at the table you have you know you have your patients, you have uh, providers, so physicians, you have payers, um, but not everyone has an equal say in the conversation. Essentially, you have a lot of payers who are ultimately the ones paying for all this healthcare, who are driving where healthcare is going, and whether or not that's high value. Uh, care for the patients at the end of the day that's really up in the air Mm -hmm. guys thank you so much for hanging out with me and thank you listeners for making us a part of your week if you like what you heard today leave us a review on itunes it will help us grow the show and make us feel good about ourselves 
because that is important. Uh, plus, you can talk about just about anything you like in our Facebook group, The Shortcoats Student Lounge. And you can always send your thoughts, questions, and comments to theshortcoats at gmail.com or leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine Student Government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities Program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox, and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.